Let's pick up Revelation 16 today. Now, I grew up, like a lot of you, in a a town in Texas, and in fact, my own hometown. uh, When I was born, it had been less than 10 years since the schools were integrated, racially integrated. My parents were in high school when the first African-American students first started coming into the the schools there in Yoakum, Texas. Um, My dad, I remember several years ago, he told me that he was looking through the business meeting minutes of the little church where I grew up. He wasn't a part of that church back in the days when he was looking at these minutes, but in the mid-60s, so right in the heart of the civil rights era, um, they had, there was, he found minutes of a business meeting in which my home church voted and passed a motion that said that if a, a black person wants to join our church, we should tell them to join a church of their own kind. I didn't know that. I mean, that never came up when I was a kid. And he said, do you know who made the motion? And I said, no. And he told me, and it was a very close relative of mine. That was devastating for me to find out. Not really surprising, but devastating. And my parents just kind of shared with me. They said, you know, we were raised in a society where we weren't taught to hate anyone, and we didn't hate anyone. We didn't look down on anyone. We were just taught that, that we were supposed to be over here, and other people were supposed to be over there, and that was just the way things were. We didn't question it. That's just the system. And, and, and I think that that was true of a lot of people who, who I grew up around, a lot of the folks who raised me and, you know, maybe my, my mentors and teachers and coaches, they grew up in that same culture. Um, these weren't bad people. I mean, the, the guy who made the motion in that church is one of my spiritual heroes, one of the most devout Christians I've ever known. And he's in heaven now because of the grace of God. And yet he and so many like him had this this terrible blind spot. They didn't see the evil in their midst, the injustice around them. They didn't question it. They just accepted it. They contributed to it by their lack of speaking up against it. And if you're my age or you're younger, you didn't grow up around that. You've only seen it in documentaries. And you've seen it in, you know, stuff on the History Channel, you know, back when the History Channel had history on it instead of reality shows. Sorry, that's a sore spot with me. But, um, so, you know, we've seen the black and white images of MLK and, and the, other, uh, the other courageous people walking down streets in places like Selma and in Birmingham and braving the fire hoses and the police dogs and, and hearing the awful things being spoken to them and shouted at them as they did so, walking into schools for the first time as people lined up to shout and scream at them, to dissuade them. Um, you, they, those were people who uh, went a, a church in... Birmingham was bombed and four little girls died, or when, when three civil rights workers were picked up by someone in a police car and were never seen alive again. When things like that happened, they would grieve, they would mourn, they would protest, but they wouldn't respond in kind. They were led by Christian people who believed in the words of Jesus, who believed the way to change society was to follow the commands of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, to love their enemies, to pray for those who hated them, to turn the other cheek when they were, when they were insulted and when they were assaulted. And they did change the minds and hearts of people through that kind of radical love. And if you're my age or you're younger, you look back at that and you say, yeah, if I would have been alive then, I would have stood up with them. I would have, I would have stood up against injustice. I would have called evil, evil. And yet, I don't know that that's true. I don't know that I would have that kind of courage. I don't know that I would have even, I, I think I would have been a lot like my relatives. I would have looked around and said, well, this is just the way things are. Maybe it's not perfect, but you know, it's okay, right? No, it wasn't. It wasn't okay at all. 
Keep that in mind. It's going to come into play later on in what we're going to talk about. Basically, the book of Revelation is written to a group of people kind of like those civil rights workers back in the 60s. The original Christians who read this book, they were standing up for righteousness in a world that accepted things the way things were. And they were treated with hatred for their love, for their grace, for their righteousness. And Jesus writes the letter of Revelation to them. Yes, I said letter because that's what it is. As a word of encouragement, keep on standing strong. Don't give up. Better things are coming. So let's read together, starting with chapter 16. You may remember verse 12. You may remember that if you've been with us a while or you're familiar with Revelation, there's this period in the middle of the book where there's seven seals on a scroll that are opened and seven trumpets that are blown by by angels and then seven bowls of God's wrath. We're, in the, we're at the end of the, the bowls of wrath here. So these are judgments of God upon the earth. And let's pick up with the sixth one in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called, let's say it all together, Armageddon. How many is familiar with that word? You ever heard it? Okay. Just quickly, this does not refer to the movie in the late 90s with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, okay? If you haven't seen the movie, don't bother. This is referring to something else. The word Armageddon is a word that literally means mountain of Mageddon. And a lot of people believe that it refers to a place called Megiddo. There's a place in northern Israel, a plain called Megiddo, where a lot of very momentous and decisive world history battles have been fought. King Josiah, the the dynamic young king of Judah uh, in in the hundreds of years before the life of Christ, was killed in a battle there fighting against the Egyptians at the age of only 37. It was a devastating blow to Judah. A hundred years ago or so, General Allenby led British troops against the Ottoman Turks and won a great battle during World War I on the plains of Megiddo. I've actually been to Megiddo when I went to Israel three years ago. I stood there and and I looked out over this great vast plain. It's really, really scenic and picturesque. And I thought to myself, is this the place? Because that's where a lot of people believe. Is this the place where the armies of the world will gather and wait for the Lord himself to appear so they can fight him? And and you can kind of picture it because it's such a huge valley. Uh, I'm sorry, such a huge plain. You can kind of picture all those armies assembled. The thing is, like I said, the word Armageddon means mountain of Megiddon. And there's not actually a mountain in Megiddo. It's a plain. So I found that interesting. And I know what we think of when we think of Armageddon and we think of a great battle. And there's a battle mentioned here, but I'm going to pose something to you this morning. Don't fire me, please. Don't stone me or anything. But what if Armageddon isn't an actual literal place? What if this is not referring to a literal battle that is going to take place with armies and swords and spears and all that stuff? Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a battle, maybe it's something else, and we'll get into that in just a moment. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 1. 17, verse 1 says, 
One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Anybody remember that, by the way? Beast with seven heads and ten horns? We read about him last week. The name... Okay, where are we? Verse 4. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. So this woman, we can can suffice to say, is not a good figure, right? This This is an evil person that is introduced to us. We recognize the beast. The beast is what we talked about last week, the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns. We talked about it could be an empire that will arise toward the end of time and and oppress God's people. It could be a person. It could be that person we often call the Antichrist, although, like I said, he's never called that in Revelation. It could be false teaching or or false uh, information about God and about the world that seeks to draw people away from the truth. And we've seen cults and, and other false teachings go out into the world and deceive people. But either way, who is this woman? This is the first time we've seen her. Now, it says it identifies her as Babylon, but it also says this is a mystery. Now, keep in mind, whenever in the New Testament it uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean mystery like we use the word we, when we talk about you know, Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie or you know, Scooby-Doo. Um, when the Bible talks about mystery, it means something hidden. Something that ordinary people can't understand. Something that you'll figure out soon enough when God's ready for you. So her name is a mystery. That means we shouldn't necessarily take it at face value. So when she's called Babylon, keep in mind Babylon was an actual city in ancient times. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, hundreds of years before the life of Christ, led that city to become a great state, a great empire. They invaded Judah, carried off God's people into captivity for 70 years. This is the main subject of the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? That happened during this period of time. So that's Babylon. But by the time John is writing these words, that city, that empire has been in ruins for hundreds of years. So what is this referring to? Well, there are some who say it's the Roman Empire. He's talking about Rome. Because this woman sits on seven hills, the city of Rome sat on seven hills. The the actual Christians in this time used to refer to Rome as Babylon. It was sort of their coded way of speaking about the Roman Empire because it was such an oppressive country, it was such an oppressive group of people, and they wanted to be able to talk about it and protest against it without the passing Roman soldier overhearing them and them getting into trouble, so they called it Babylon. So a lot of people read this and they think what John is saying is this great empire that right now seems to rule every country on earth is someday going to crumble. And did that happen? Yeah, I think we all know that it did. Even if you're not a history buff, you know there's no more Roman Empire. And others say, well, it's not talking about history, it's talking about the future. 
It's talking about someday soon there's going to be a revived Roman Empire led by the Antichrist. That's why this woman rides the beast. The Antichrist will lead this coalition of countries that will come together and and rule the world and, and oppress the people of God. And that may be what this is about. And it may be that Armageddon is this battle. We'll read about it next week where, where Jesus comes and destroys all those armies, literally. And if you interpret it that way, then you have great biblical warrant on your side and a lot of a lot of biblical scholars on your side. However, I think there's another way to look at this. I want you to notice what it says about this woman. It says that she, she, is in lo- or she has kings, she has merchants of the world, powerful men in love with her. She's beautiful and seductive. In fact, notice chapter 18, verse 11. Chapter 18, verse 11 I'm sorry, you know what? I'm skipping some stuff. Let's look at verse 16, actually. Chapter 17, verse 16. It says, The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city who rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Now skip down to verse 11. This is where I started to take you a moment ago. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. So what do we know about this woman, Babylon? She's beautiful and seductive. Kings of the earth worship her. The merchants of the world rely on her. She has something to do with the world economy. What if what what she represents is not a physical city or a state or a person, but the way things are? The culture of this world the values this world holds dear, the way things are today. Because think about the way things are in this world. What's important to this world? Money. Money's important. And I'm not saying money is, is bad. If you've got money, praise the Lord. But this world values money above other things, above eternal things. And that means that the rich get richer and the poor are fighting for scraps in, in, the, in the back. That means that people will sacrifice their own health and their families and, and everything that's precious to gain more because success is found in a bigger house, a nicer car, trendier clothes, looking and, and, and bearing all the trappings of financial material success. It's this quest for money, is, as 1 Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. What else is important to this world? Power. 
Man, for the quest for power, kings, look down through history, kings and then presidents and dictators have plunged their countries into wars that have killed millions and have displaced hundreds of millions more. And almost always those wars are unjust. Almost always those wars are fought simply for the purpose of gaining more power, more authority, more land, more clout. We just came out of the 20th century. You know the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. We're supposed to be civilized and enlightened. And so many died. So many were injured. So many displaced simply in a quest for more power. Even in our own country, and and I'll just tell you, I'm biased, I know, but I think we've got the best system of government the world has ever seen. And yet, even in our system of government, every time there's an election, we all shake our heads and say, my gosh, this, is, this sure makes me cynical. As people just nakedly grasp for power and, and tell bald untruths to get elected or to stay elected, power is what this world values. And then individual happiness. Again, there's nothing wrong with being happy. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be holy even more. But in order to be happy, we trample on others. In order to gain what we think we need to gain happiness, to experience the pleasure our bodies tell us we need, we'll, over, we'll, we'll, we'll overrule God's clear standards for our behavior, for our thoughts, for our values. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what the Word of God says or what God wants for us or what makes for health for us. We'll do what it takes to be happy. And that quest for pleasure, that quest To slake the thirst within us leads us to so many awful decisions. These are the ways of the world. These are the values of this world. And the world says there is no success without chasing after money and power and pleasure that leads to individual happiness. And I believe what this woman represents is that. In fact, if you you look at the Scriptures, God uses the term the world in a couple of different ways. I want to show you 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16 says, For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Later on, that same book, it's going to say, if you're a friend of the world, you can't be a friend of God. And yet, and yet, we all know John 3.16. That's the most famous verse of all, written by the same apostle, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So how can God say he loves the world so much he'll die for it, but he also says, don't be a friend of the world and everything evil comes from the world. It's because he's talking about two different things. God loves the people of this world. He loves every single person who lives in this world and who has lived in this world. But he hates the values of this world. And what he's saying here in in Revelation 16 through 18 is the values of this world, the way things are, that you just accept because it's what you've grown up in. It's like like a fish doesn't think about the water it swims in. Those values are against me. Those values are destroying you, and I hate them, and they're someday soon going to end. When I show up, those values are done. I believe Babylon in these chapters represents the city this world is building with its own values. Meanwhile, God is building a very different kind of city, the New Jerusalem. The book of Revelation can very accurately be described as a tale of two cities. Babylon has been been constructed ever since the beginning of humankind. Meanwhile, God is building a different kind of city, the New Jerusalem, that someday is coming down here. And there's not room for both cities on this earth. 
And what chapter 18 is saying is, someday soon Babylon is going to be destroyed so the new Jerusalem can take its place. And its values are quite different. Its values are joy and peace and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, righteousness, humility, grace, and the glory of Almighty God. And the question you and I have to wrestle with is which city is our true home? Now, I know you're sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, and it's a beautiful day, and you could be doing anything. And so you say, well, obviously, obviously, I'm a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Good, I hope so. But where does your heart truly live? Because here's the thing. I think there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians and may really be. It's not my job to judge. But I think there's a lot of people who call themselves believers in Jesus but who are living as solid citizens of, the, of, of Babylon. And when Jesus returns, they're going to find they've got nothing left. Maybe by God's grace, they get into heaven, they get into the new earth, but they'll get in with nothing. Everything they've built for themselves has been built on money and power and the quest for individual happiness at cost of their own souls. And they'll be saved because they trusted in Jesus for salvation, but they'll be, Paul describes it in in 1 Corinthians, as like one saved as through fire. They'll be like someone who was pulled out of a burning house and they'll be rescued, but they'll have nothing to show for their lives. Everything they've built is gone. And all of eternity sit and think, I wasted, I wasted the one chance I had to build something eternal. See, the bigger point, even if you don't agree with my interpretation, because I know it's different from what you've been taught, and even if you, even if you see Babylon as a, a revived Roman Empire and the, and the Antichrist and, and the Battle of Armageddon like we've already, always been taught, even if you think that, either way, the truth is, evil dies and God wins. That's the true message of chapter 18. God wins in the end. Righteousness wins. Grace wins. Love conquers. The devil goes down. Death dies. We'll get into more of that later. But let me just share with you just something a little quirky and weird about me. And I've got a purpose for this in just a moment. Please don't judge me, but this is true of me. When my favorite team is playing in a game that is televised, I will tape that game even if I'm going to watch it live. Even if I'm going to be there, I'll tape it. And if we lose, as soon as I get home, I delete it. It it didn't happen. It doesn't exist. If you mention it to me on Sunday morning, you're not my friend. But if we win, I will keep it like it's the stinking holy grail. And I will bring it out at at certain moments and watch it again. In fact, true story, yesterday morning after I I went on a run, I ran further than I've ever run before. I was so proud of myself. I thought I deserved a break. You know what I did? I sat and watched University of Houston play Oklahoma in football from last September. And and I watched the whole game because I used my time wisely. And, And the thing about that game is that was a tough game. Oklahoma was a good team. And there were several moments where bad things happened for my team. Fumbles and injuries and and setbacks and and blown coverages. And when I was at that game live, I was a bundle of nerves. Let me just give you a piece of advice. If you want to get to know me better, okay, if you want to spend time with me, that's great. I'd love to do that. Don't do it at a U of H game, okay, because I am not there for conversation. I'm not there to eat popcorn. I'm there for the game, and I'm into the game. 
And, and when bad things happen, it, it, it wounds me deeply. If the referees blow a call, that's because they're Nazis and they deserve to die. I mean, it's... it's <laughs> but yesterday when I'm watching the game again, I had a totally different perspective. Bad calls went against us. Those refs are just human. Everybody makes mistakes. Fumbles, mistakes, penalties, we'll get over it. Don't worry. It's just going to make victory all the sweeter. You know what the difference was in my perspective? This time, I knew who won. Now, some of you all are with me, okay? Some of you could preach this sermon for me. As God's people, Revelation is telling us the final score. Now, we may not know all the things that are going to happen until we get there, And there's going to be some bad calls. There's going to be some injustice that happens to you and to me. There's going to be some times we make awful mistakes. There's going to be times when we experience devastating losses. And yet, the news of the final score should change how we view that. It should change how we view the people around us. When you think about it this way, when you think about the final score, you come to realize there's not a human being on earth who is really your enemy. Are there people who don't like you? Are there people who are mean to you? Are there people who uh, are cruel? Absolutely. But when you look at things from the perspective of eternity, you realize those are just sinners like me. Those are just people for whom Christ died. Those are just people who are lost like I once was. I've got no reason to hate them. They're going to spend eternity somewhere just like I will. When those awful things happen to us, sometimes so unfair, sometimes because of our own bad decisions, sometimes because of nothing we did, when we, speak, when we look from the perspective of eternity, we can look at them and say, yeah, but this is just temporary. This is like, this is like me as a little kid getting upset because mom's taking me to the doctor to get shots. That's going to be over like that. Nothing to cry about. We can even change the way we look at death. Because as Christians, we know that death is not our goal. We know that as Christians, it's better if we're still alive when Christ returns. That should be our goal. That's what we should hope for. But even if we die first, as Paul says, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So either way, we win. We really don't have anything to be afraid of. What's the worst they can do? Kill us? That's a promotion. It changes everything when you realize the final score. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do? Because we may be in the second quarter right now. We don't know. What do we do until Babylon falls? Look at verse 4 of chapter 18. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her, my people, he says. Now, if Babylon represents an earthly empire or city, then the message is clear. Once the end times begin and you see all the signs that these are happening, if you're in that city, get out. You don't want to be an innocent bystander caught up in the wrath of God. But if my idea, and I'm not the first one to come up with this, but if my idea that I'm sharing with you today is the truth, then what Jesus is saying is don't fall in love with the ways of this world. You live in Babylon, but you don't have to love the way Babylon does business. Yes, you have, to, you have to live here, but in your heart, always be a citizen of the New Jerusalem. Don't adopt their values. Don't fall in love with their ways. Again, I will say, if you love the way this world does business, then when Jesus comes back, you'll be left with nothing. That'll be a terrible day. And it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be put in a position of authority or power. It's not wrong to be happy. 
But if that's what your life is based on, then you're building a house of sand. And someday you're going to experience total and complete devastation. But I want you to balance that idea, that idea of come out from among her, with another very biblical idea. Turn with me to Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7. Now, Jeremiah was written during the time of exile that I talked about when the Babylonians had taken the Jews away from their homeland. You need to read this in, in conjunction with what we just read because I don't want you to be left with the idea that our job as Christian people is just to wait around for Jesus to return. Just to sort of seclude ourselves into Christian ghettos and wait until Jesus comes back and rights all wrongs. Jeremiah, when, when Babylon invaded Israel and carried away the people into exile, Jeremiah was one of a few Jews who stayed behind. And he wrote a letter to those in exile to tell them, hey, you think you're going to be there just a few weeks and then God's going to deliver you, but it's not going to be that way. You're going to be there for 70 years. Most of you will never see Israel again. And here was his advice to them. 29.7 says, Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. For I know the plans I have for you, verse 11 says. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I bet some of you, some of the seniors here got, had that written in graduation cards they received, but that was actually written to people in exile to say, I have a future for you, but your future for now is in Babylon. And don't seclude yourself into a little Jewish ghetto. Be a citizen of that city. Make the city better. Show the world what your kingdom is like. And that's the Lord's instructions to us today. Because we're citizens of the New Jerusalem, but we live in Babylon. Now, we may live in the best Babylon on earth, but it's still Babylon. And we need to be the best people in our city whether you live in Conroe or Montgomery or Willis or the Woodlands or Magnolia or somewhere out in the country, you need to make where you live a better place. You need, to be, you need to be a light in your workplace and in your neighborhood and in your social circle. You need to show the world the values of the true city where you live, where you're truly from, even though you've never been there. You need to show them what life is like there. Years ago, I, I went on a mission trip, actually just a couple of years ago, a mission trip down to the Rio Grande Valley, to the city of Harlingen. There's a church there, and this is a, an English-speaking church, although it has a Spanish name. Uh, it's actually in Spanish. It's New Wine Baptist Church. Isn't that hilarious? Um, New Wine Baptist Church, and the pastor is a man named Jorge. Now, the, now Jorge and his parishioners speak English. And, and they're all pretty well-to-do people. They're successful. In many ways, you could look at them and say, those are people who've made it. They've done things the right way. They've played by the rules, and they're reaping the rewards. They live in a part of the world where most people don't have that in common with them. Most of their neighbors don't speak English. Most of their neighbors don't have what we would call American success. In fact, there, there are areas, vast areas of that part of the state that are populated by what are called colonias. Do you know what a colonia is? It's basically where a person with some money buys a big tract of land, 40 or 50 acres, and then sells off little half-acre tracts for a little bit of money with vague promises of utilities and infrastructure that never materialize. So you go out to this, what looks like a cow pasture, full of ramshackle homes, shacks, single-wide trailers, campers, half of a prefab home, 
and most of them have no utilities. And these people spent all their money just to buy that little plot of land, and they're living in the worst kind of poverty you'll ever see in this country. Now, Jorge and his church members could look at people like that and say, that's not my problem. I played by the rules. I did things the right way. If, if you do what I did, you'll be all right. But they don't do that. They reach out to the people in those colonias. They minister to them in the name of Christ. They say the way things are is not the way they have to be. And he told me a story. When we went down there, we, we went alongside him and did a lot of ministry. He told me a story about this one house they went to. This house was barely standing. It was the kind of house where there was, there was almost no shelter from the elements. And they put up sheetrock. They, they got the house sealed in really good. They insulated it. For the first time, this family would have shelter from mosquitoes and heat in the, in the summer and, and cold in the winter. And the head of the home, this, this husband, came up to him and he said to him, why are you doing this? I don't understand this. You may think I'm a good person, but I'm not. I was a drug dealer in Mexico. The only reason I crossed the border is because I was going to die over there. There are people who want me dead. So I'm only here to save my own skin. I don't deserve what you're doing. And Jorge said, do you see what happened when you invited us into your home? The whole place changed. He said, if you invite Jesus into your life, your whole life will change too. And he said that man, this, this drug dealer, just began to weep freely, could barely even talk. And finally he said, I want that. Can you show me how to have that? And his wife said, I want that too. And his kids walked up and said, well, I want that too. And that whole family that night gave their lives to Christ, were born again, began a brand new life. Why? Because there was a church in that community that said the way things are is not the way they have to be. There was a church that, that decided to stand up against the values of this world and show the radical love of Jesus Christ. And guess what? You know, when we talk about, here at First Baptist, we talk about renovating our own hearts so that we'll become disciple makers who change the world. That's what I'm talking about. See, the vision I think God has for First Baptist Conroe is not just that we'll continue to maintain this presence downtown and, and we'll keep on going with these wonderful programs. All that's great, but that's not victory. I think the vision of God is that we'll become the kind of church that everybody who comes in contact with us experiences an opportunity to change. And some of them will change because they walk through those doors and they'll be met with love and they'll hear the true gospel and, and they'll, they'll see something they just can't resist. But a lot of them, in fact, I think most of them may never walk through those doors, but they'll run into you at your workplace or on your street or on a little league baseball field or a golf course or out at the lake or wherever you minister with ESL or with Mission Conroe or with our youth ministry or our children's ministry or mission trip. And you're going to live a life that's so immersed in the values of the new Jerusalem. And the love of God is just going to seep out through all of your pores in such a tangible way that when people come into contact with you, they're going to be thirsty and hungry for what only you have through the power of Christ. And we're going to see lives changed. And we're going to see people baptized. And we're going to see people turn their lives around because they're going to invite into their hearts the one who can change them. Because God's going to change us. I don't know 
If I'd been alive in the middle 60s and I lived where I lived, I don't know that I would have been any more wise and courageous than my ancestors. I don't know that I would have stood up against injustice and said it's wrong that we've got separate systems that aren't even close to equal. It's wrong that we don't care about people who don't look like us. I don't know that I would have had that kind of courage. I I hope I would have, but I doubt it. I'm just not that courageous. But we have an opportunity right now, an opportunity to stand up for the truth, for the compassion of Christ, for the grace of God, for his ability to change people, any people. Someday, the the world the way it is now is going to be replaced by a better world. And on that day, there's going to be two kinds of people who walk through the gates of God's kingdom. There's going to be people who, like I said earlier, get through those gates and say, by God's grace, I'm here and I've got nothing to show for my life on earth. Everything I built was part of Babylon and it's now in ruins. And I regret the way I lived. And there's going to be people and I hope that's us, who walk through those gates and stand in the presence of Christ and we say, I'm here only by your grace. And by your grace, you used me in this world. You used me to help others see that there was something better than the way things are. And we'll walk up, we'll walk up to people for the rest of eternity who say, you're part of the reason I'm here today. You're part of the reason I escaped what I was destined for. Isn't that the eternity you want? Hallelujah. We win either way, but how much better to live a life that glorifies God that much?